Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Dr. Kenneth Anderson, D.O., the Chief Operating Officer for the Health Research and Educational Trust, a subsidiary of the American Hospital Association in Chicago, Illinois. In this podcast, we trace Ken's career in medicine from his training in both family practice and internal medicine, then as a nephrologist and kidney transplant specialist, followed by his movement into the physician executive ranks, specializing in quality and data management as the chief medical quality officer for the North Shore University Health System, before his current position as COO of HRET. As the COO of HRET, he helps influence health policy at the national level through research and educational programs. I really enjoyed speaking with Ken about his career his passion for medicine and improving the quality of care for patients at the individual and system level is evident in everything he has done. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening. And here is Dr. Ken Anderson. Welcome to the Forge, Ken. Thank you very much, Mark. Nice to be here. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about your career today. You've done a, a number of interesting things, and you now work for one of the most prominent health policy organizations in the country. But to go back to kind of your early beginnings, you graduated from the University of Iowa in Iowa City in 1974. Why did you go to Iowa, and what did you study as an undergrad? Well, my road to Iowa was rather uh, circuitous. I grew up in Southern California, and my parents were from Iowa. And as I got ready to make an undergraduate decision, it actually fell between Stanford and Iowa. And surprisingly, I took one step on the campus at the University of Iowa, and I immediately fell in love with it, and I knew that was going to be my destination. So while in Iowa, I was very intrigued by a number of offerings they had and actually declared six separate majors while I was at the University of Iowa that ranged far afield from being in the writer's workshop for a bit uh, to being a Spanish major. I was uh, working with the folks in the Department of Physics as a physics major and had a really great opportunity to learn directly from James Van Allen of the Van Allen Radiation Belts. But overall, I settled into applied science as uh, being the place that I really was interested in. So during my second semester of my junior year, I really determined that medicine as an applied science was the direction I wanted to go. What drew you to medicine? You know, I think it was my love for science, but uh, also with a love for people. I always have been of the belief that people who go into healthcare, they're very bright people, they're very motivated people, but they're sure. people who come at their positions from someplace that's very located within their hearts. It's a personal mission. And I think my desire for medicine uh, sort of played out on a role that I I saw evolving from a time when I was a foreign exchange student in Costa Rica, living in a very rural village when my foreign exchange student family uncle passed away from a simple disease. So, of course, the idealistic Marcus Welby in me said, I will go to medical school eventually, and I'm going to come back to Costa Rica, and I'm going to help people just like this. Wow. All right. Well, so you did go to medical school after you graduated, and you went to the College of Osteopathic Medicine and Surgery in Des Moines and, and graduated in 1978 with a Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine. For listeners who are not familiar with osteopathy, can you comment briefly on the differences and similarities between a DO and an MD and, and the training that they go through? Sure, and I think uh, it's been of interest to watch both the fields grow as they've, as it's been during my career path. I've been able to see a lot of similarities now between um, the osteopathic and allopathic fields. When I was in undergraduate school, <clears throat> I actually began uh, at uh, the University of Iowa in the College of Medicine, thinking that I was very interested in the traditional approaches to to medicine and. Over the course of the first holiday break, I had a chance to talk to a good friend of mine from high school 
who was enrolled at the College of Osteopathic Medicine and Surgery. And he reinforced at that time what were some perceived differences in the whole, more of a holistic approach that uh, came from osteopathic medicine. And so rather than the traditional approach, I was really convinced that there were many different ways that healing could be provided. So in addition to the traditional pathophysiologic approach to disease and studies of biochemistry and anatomy and physiology, which we did at both the allopathic and osteopathic schools, there was a whole branch that was really related to the holism of providing care for people in more of a, a generalized fashion so that it wasn't, for example, in a traditional role, it wasn't just the gallbladder in room 314, uh, where I always envisioned sort of this little tiny gallbladder sitting in a bed, but it was really the, the patient with gallbladder disease who happened to be the grandmother of uh, two young children at a public school, one of whom was you know involved in music lessons and so forth. So it was really more of a holistic approach. And I think the second that I learned was that it was that the osteopathic role was one that frequently embraced the, the multitude of ways merging sometimes Eastern and Western approaches to healthcare. And I had just come from a class in the allopathic school that was called Hypnosis for Dentistry and Medicine, where an oral surgeon was uh, fully operating just using hypnosis as his anesthetic. And I began to realize the great power that uh, fell outside of the traditional domain. So that's what I was interested in, osteopathic medicine. Oh, fascinating. I, I mentioned to you in the comments that that my father is actually an MD and my sister's a DO. I'm I'm the only black sheep in the family who's not a real doctor. So uh, I appreciate <laughs> that. So you completed a residency in family practice, which seems like a natural follow-on to what the way you were just describing your interest in medicine. Uh, and you did that at Iowa Lutheran hospital in Des Moines, but instead of going into practice, you actually went and then did an internal medicine, excuse me, you then went and did an internal medicine residency at Yale University Norwalk Hospital. Why did you go straight from from family practice residency into internal medicine residency? Well, at the risk of sort of falling upon this uh, appearance of a fellow who doesn't really quite know sometimes what exactly he wants to do, (laughs) I will say that in doing my family medicine residency, it provided me all the tools and the skills that I thought I needed to take on this approach of of a very human science, which is the practice of medicine. It was an allopathic residency. I went back into the MD side where I became one of only two osteopaths in the program. And I really thought that that was the direction I was going to go. I was going to perhaps go into small town Iowa and set my shingle out and practice as uh, as a Marcus Welby physician. And then something happened that I was fully unprepared for, and that was during my second year of my residency, I happened to have a chance to work with a fellow by the name of Cyril Flynn, who is a nephrologist and was a very prominent nephrologist, uh, very creative, inventive, and he brought nephrology really fully to life. And I'll have to admit that during my medical school years, the very last thing I could have ever imagined myself becoming would be a nephrologist because I absolutely detested all the countercurrent mechanisms and all the acid-base balance and so forth. But he brought it to life, and so I had a a very good mentor at that time who was the head of the internal medicine department, John Nansen. And I met with John and I said, John, I I think I've actually fallen in love with nephrology. I think that's going to be my career path. And John said, you know, why don't you stick with the family medicine residency, wrap it up. You've made a commitment here, wrap it up and finish your three years here. And so I was a chief resident during my third year in family medicine. And then I launched out into the internal medicine as, as the place that I had to get in order to do the specialty of nephrology. So I um, actually kind of by a cold call thought, well, if I was going to do internal medicine, that I had always heard that the best place to do medicine is in New England uh, because it's fairly traditional and an Ivy League approach. And so I contacted the folks at uh, Yale and Norwalk Hospital and told them what my plan was. And they were very willing to bring me in with open arms. Nice. And so, so you went into the internal medicine residency with the full intention of, of ultimately doing nephrology then? 
That's correct. It was at that time it was the only stepping stone to be able to do nephrology. You had to you could not go from family medicine into nephrology. You could only go to internal medicine as a specialty and then nephrology is a subspecialty of internal medicine. Okay. So then you followed up your internal medicine and residency with a clinical fellowship in nephrology at LA County Hospital in the Univers- and University of Southern California. Uh, you kind of talked to what it was that drew you there. Talk about the practice of nephrology and, and, and a little bit about what, what was it that, that fascinated you so much? Well, I think during the early 1980s when I was a nephrology fellow, what drew me there was the fact that there were so, uh, there were so many unanswered questions. And it was a relatively young specialty. There was some emerging research. There were a lot of uh, research questions that were out there just lying on the table. So I had an opportunity to exercise my true love for science by not only doing the clinical nephrology part, learning how to take care of patients who had high blood pressure and kidney disease and diabetes and so forth, but also I had a chance to be at the bench and to do some basic research that was published. So it gave me the opportunity of kind of bridging what that love was for science with this really great thirst that I had for knowledge in a relatively young specialty. A question I like to ask my physician guests is society holds physicians in a high regard and being a physician is usually an important part of of a person's identity once that's been achieved. When did you really feel like you had become a physician? Was it immediately upon graduation from medical school or sometime later and how did you know? Well, you know, that's a, that is really an interesting question. The reason I say that is because I think to this day that I continue to learn something new and different on my journey of becoming a physician. So I think that um, I always look at physician as being someone who must really continue to really uh, focus on what's new today, how to keep up, what can I do to to help and to serve. And so I guess I would say I probably continue to evolve in my role as a physician. And one of the nice things that I learned during my family medicine residency from my program chief at that time, Bruno Masters, who was a, a very interesting fellow from North Carolina, who said to us, my job, boys and girls, is to try to get you all to kind of see like you're going to grow up. You all were kind of stud- you're all kind of studied because you're all so smart. You were sitting there studying all that time, and you never really had a chance to take care of people. And I think that he led me to believe that it was more important to become the best human being you could possibly be in a balanced fashion and to give that best human being in the practice of medicine. So I've worked very hard to try to maintain uh, a life that is very highly integrated between all parts of my life. I'm a, an avid family man. I love sports. I love the outdoors. And so the role of physician is just a part of who I am. Okay, that's a, that's a, a great answer. So you returned to Des Moines after uh, following your, your fellowship, and you became the director of dialysis and the chief of nephrology at Iowa Lutheran, which is the same place where you had done your family practice residency. And you also became a clinical instructor at the College of Osteopathic Medicine and Surgery shortly after returning. It must have been rewarding to close that circle and and kind of have roles at, at both places where you had done so much of your training. It was. I I was in Los Angeles and received a phone call from a fellow who was a a mentor of mine in the internal medicine department uh, back when I was a a resident, and he had gone back to complete a nephrology fellowship and phoned me asking if I would like to go into practice with him. And uh, there must have been 10 or 20 seconds of silence on the phone as I was trying to figure a polite way of saying to him, I would never really think about moving back to the Midwest. I'm back in California again. This is where I'm supposed to be. And the more I thought about it, the more I really realized that these were the best days uh, of my professional career where I had been at Iowa Lutheran Hospital. It was a wonderful place, a wonderful culture. And so as I moved back, it was kind of a, a bit of a joke on the medical staff because the fellow who I saw as my mentor, this Dr. Cyril Flynn, had been the chairman uh, and the section chief, and I took over that role, and in fact, I even moved into his house. So it was almost as if I was following a straight path into what was the uh, career choices and personal choices for Dr. Flynn. Fascinating. Was your position at Iowa Lutheran your first experience in a leadership role? Because you took on a chief role right away. Yeah. You know, I was... 
there are a couple of places along the line that I guess I probably could look back and see I got some leadership experience prior to that. I, I had been a chief resident in the family medicine residency. I had been a chief resident in the internal medicine residency, and I was the senior fellow in the clinical nephrology fellowship program. Each of those took on some additional responsibilities besides being just a resident or fellow that were leadership in nature. And I, I guess my whole life I have uh, always found myself in these positions that date back all the way to when I was in kindergarten and I was chosen to coordinate the, all the actors in the in our play, uh, in our kindergarten play, Peter Pan, where I played the role of Peter Pan. But <laughs> through my whole life, I think there just have been opportunities. And as I've seen those opportunities arise, I have uh, just thrived and flourished in, in wanting to run to where those opportunities are. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about your early career as a clinician? So now you, you're there, you're practicing. What was the scope of your practice? Where, where were you working? Because you, you were working in a couple of different places eventually. Yeah, I, uh, I really, of course, was uh, in love with nephrology and um, and practiced as many hours as I possibly could. We had a good opportunity to do some innovative things, um, all the way from creating a new type of dialysis technique to uh, launching a new transplant program at the at one of the hospitals where I was working, and. Uh, I think that we just worked really hard uh, because we were trying to build a practice. So I had a very busy office practice. We worked out of um, uh, four or five hospitals, and oftentimes we found ourselves, because it was a growing practice, a new practice, uh, just oftentimes sitting in the emergency departments um, of some of the hospitals just trying to show commitment to practice and willingness to be there uh, for for people who needed uh, nephrology care in the uh, the emergency department who didn't have a nephrologist. So. We were really busy. Uh, it was a it was a true labor of love. Uh, my partner used to say, uh, jokingly, somebody said that he believed that medicine was his wife, and uh, I believe we probably spent more time uh, with our practice and getting it to grow early on than we did with uh, with our families. And again, that was a good reminder for me to place this uh, work-life integration into some perspective, so that I did not miss out on um, my kids as they were growing up. You pursued a internship in the Harvard University Executive Program in Health Management, and then you went on to pursue a Master of Science in Administrative Medicine from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1996, and then you earned your Certified Physician Executive Credential from the American College of Physician Executives in 1999. So you did all these things while you were still practicing. Why did you pursue these credentials, and how did this training kind of help you prepare for the next phase of your career? Yeah, that's a uh, that's an interesting thing as it evolved. I was elected chief of staff for the uh, for the entire medical staff, and one of the responsibilities that I had was representing the medical staff in conversations with the board and with uh, the health system administration. And I really realized that if I were going to be an active participant, I had to have some street cred, so to speak. Uh, it wasn't good enough to just represent the voice. I had to be able to understand what it was that I was representing. And so as I went back into the first program, it was very nice that it was able to be provided as a, uh, a non-residential program with many of the classes available uh, on-site in Des Moines, Iowa, where we had uh, Harvard faculty coming uh, to Des Moines to help us uh, with this, this pursuit. And then going to the University of Wisconsin in Madison was a time where I was on campus uh, five or six weeks of the year. We had uh, teleconferences, so distance learning, and then we did internships uh, at, uh, I, I, for example, was at the HHS, and I was at the Board of Health uh, in Iowa because I had been on the Iowa State Board of Health, and I, I wanted to prepare myself so I had some street cred so that if I were getting into a conversation about detailed budgeting kinds of questions, I wanted to be able to know what it was that I was talking about with, with my colleagues who were on the administrative and board side. Okay. Also around this time, you became involved in a number of quality-related organizations and initiatives, including the Quality Care Institute of the Illinois Hospital Association and the Baldridge National Quality Program. How did quality become a focus for you? Well, I think I realized that in my daily practice in medicine that things could and should be better, that there were opportunities that abounded where you could probably with a little detailed thinking and some process improvement work, help to create a better health system than what was 
prior. Now, th- this was something I also grew up with, so to speak. When I first went into practice, I was a member of the quality committee for one of the hospitals. And this was just because by default, every new physician on staff had to be part of one of the hospital committees. And I remember asking a lot of questions during the first meeting. And uh, during the meeting, I was kind of gently reminded that after the meeting was over, they could go into further detail with me. And uh, after the meeting ended, I was I was pulled aside by one of the vice presidents and said, you know, Ken, the, the reason that you're here is because Joint Commission comes to accredit us and they look for physician participation. And what that means is you just need to sign in and say that you are here. It really is a part of the solving problems. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is not exactly what I was looking for. And so as I grew up, I began to lot, ask a lot more questions. Finally, as chief of staff, I had a standing meeting with the CEO, and I would go in every Friday afternoon, and I would tell poor Tom uh, all the things that were wrong in the health system that I had personally experienced in. Someone ought to do something about this. And Tom, one Friday afternoon during our standing meetings, pulled out one of his drawers, and out of the drawer, he pulled a hand mirror, and he put it right in my face, and he said, that's the person who needs to be doing something about it. And that really launched uh, a personal commitment in terms of getting involved with the quality journey. Fast forwarding a bit, prior to your current position, you served from 2008 to 2014 at the North Shore University Health System in a variety of roles, but you were ultimately the chief medical quality officer. What did you do as the chief medical quality officer for the system? And what was your scope of responsibility in that role? Well, it was a pretty broad role in the sense that it was a four-hospital health system and was really designing strategies and trying to lead all the performance improvement efforts and education across predominantly our professional staff, which was our medical staff of 2,500 physicians, but launching a standardized approach to peer review and uh, clinical quality improvement at a departmental level, developing a mentorship and a fellowship program to train young quality leaders of the, of the future, and then to assess, development, promote, and, uh, and educate about uh, performance edu- uh, indicators that we had. So it was a pretty broad scope, and it was really, uh, I felt the responsibility that if anything was happening related to quality and safety at any of those four hospitals in the system, that it was ultimately my responsibility to make sure that it was done correctly. Were you still practicing at that time? I was not. This was a, uh, I took this on as a full-time position, although I was an, an active member of the clinical departments uh, within the, the medical staff. It was really I felt a very important time for me to to declare that this was what I was going to be uh, doing 100% of the time. One of uh, my old mentors had suggested at one point in time that at a time in your life, you have to make some key decisions. And the example he used was, imagine that it's five minutes of noon and you've been working on a big proposal that's going to promote a new service that's going to help the community. And you've been working on this for six months And at that exact time, one of your favorite patients, you receive a phone call from the emergency department that that patient is there short of breath and needs to have emergent dialysis services performed. Where are you going to go? And the answer, of course, was I'm going to follow my patient. That's the life and death part of where I was. But his, his point was, I think, to me that I needed to leverage my talent where I could have the most influence. And so when I committed towards the chief medical quality officer role, that was what I did full-time. Okay. So you saw the new role as being able to kind of uh, spread your influence over the whole system rather than just individual patients one at a time. Right. You know, a big part of what I continued to do was to participate in rounds and educational opportunities and grand rounds. Um, And I tried to continuously um, interview people from the departments as we were getting involved in um, root cause analysis and safety and so forth. So that I never lost touch with what it was that these folks were doing, the important work that they were doing on a day-to-day basis. Okay. You had the title Chief Medical Quality Officer, so that makes – it sounds to me like you were – that position played a role in the senior leadership structure. Is that correct? Yes, I was on um, the uh, senior and executive leadership groups that uh, met to discuss things all the way from strategies all the way down to the tactics and implementation plans. At this time, you were also the co-director of the Center for Clinical Research and Informatics. What was the purpose of that center? 
Well, it was interesting how this uh, came about. We were we were blessed to have some outstanding clinical researchers at North Shore, and we had established a center for research. And many things were coming forward and adding uh, to the literature of the day. And one of the things that we had the opportunity to look at is all of the clinical information that we had. Uh, we had been on a singular electronic medical record platform that spanned both the ambulatory and the inpatient side using this same uh, clinical data report repository. And we realized just how much useful information was really held inside of that uh, data warehouse. And so one of the uh, one of the ideas was, was perhaps we could go ahead and launch research using the data repository found in the warehouse if we could make it manageable. So we conspired to put together the Center for Clinical Research Informatics as a way of trying to learn not only from what were best practices of the day, but from within our own uh, care practices, what was actually happening within our system. So we had millions and millions of encounters, and we had the opportunity then to design ways of looking at care gaps and how to address them, uh, developing ways of better deploying and implementing best practices using the electronic medical record, uh, using the research to try to help identify trends in uh, in healthcare within our communities. Uh, so it's a really uh, vibrant way of harnessing informatics as a way of uh, taking it to the next level of learning. Fascinating. So that really does tie together with your role in the quality uh, or your quality role. Absolutely. We uh, tried to train uh, as many of our physician quality leads in the use of some of the data warehousing tools we actually built from scratch, um, a new clinical analytics and informatics department that was led by a, a very bright physician who had some strong interest in, uh, in doing this. And we've been able to uh, launch some pretty innovative ideas. In other words, uh, we, for one particular example, we wanted to recognize what was the scope and span of unrecognized hypertension in our community using informatics resources to do that. And in doing that, we actually found about 40 to 60 new patients per month over the first two years who had really putative hypertension that we needed to make sure that they were followed up a bit more closely. And we think that had positive health benefits for that cohort of patients. And then in addition, we were able to put out a, a new app that's now available out on the uh, Apple App Store called What's Going Around, that or WGA, which was an idea that came from when I was uh, in South Bend, Indiana. We were charged with helping the community better understand the kinds of clinical conditions that were going around. Well, you could imagine the power of informatics if we had all of these encounters captured in a data warehouse of how much benefit we could have of informing our community of what was actually going around in the community. Wow, that's that's fascinating. I, it sounds like you were really at the cutting edge of using informatics and, and population health, a lot of what we're talking about uh, today in, 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 and many organizations are trying to push towards. It was really an exciting time, and, and uh, I felt, again, that same level of passion I did when I first went into clinical practice because it was uncovering something brand new almost every day of a new relationship, a new care gap, a new way of helping people to practice medicine, reinforcing the use of a very powerful electronic medical record. So in 2014, you, you left North Shore and you took your current position as the Chief Operating Officer for the Health Research and Education Trust. Uh, before we talk about your role specifically, can you tell us a little about the organization? Yeah, the Health Research and Educational Trust is a 501c3, a not-for-profit organization that is a part of the larger membership organization, uh, the American Hospital Association. And our main purpose here at HRET is really to transform healthcare through research and education. So um, this really played very well on um, the work that I had been doing at North Shore and now taking it to scale. So in other words, um, all the work we were doing for four hospitals and health system, uh, I really wanted to come to this organization and try to help it uh, to create new knowledge and tools and assistance to better deliver care for six or, or 8,000 hospitals and communities in America. Wow. Okay. So as an affiliate of the American Hospital Association, how much direction does HRET take from uh, the American Hospital Association in terms of areas of focus? What is, what's the linkage between AHA and, and HRET? 
We have really a number of linkages. I, I serve on uh, some AHA committees. We uh, have purchase services that come in the form of some of our finance services, some of our uh, HR and IT services as basic operational gr- uh, groundwork and a framework for us to use. And then in addition, the CEO of HRET is Dr. Malik Joshi. And Malik is um, an associate executive vice president at AHA, and he leads all of the clinical leadership activities at the American Hospital Association, one of which is the Health Research and Educational Trust. Why is it useful for HRET to actually be a separate organization from AHA? Why not just be another office within AHA? Well, one of the things we distinguish ourselves is in being a research and educational shop. And really our core competency is really how do we help to accelerate large-scale change. We rely on the AHA to open doors for us and get us introduced to hospitals and health systems that become part of our research and educational cohorts. So we really want to maintain that uh, independent research and educational arm, but as a valued member of the AHA, which is a membership organization. So there's actually a, a bi-directional flow of information and uh, and value that's created both by the AHA and for the AHA by HRET. What's the governance structure for HRET? Does it have its own board? Yeah, we have uh, our own separate board as a 501c3. These are members of the academic uh, educational research communities in general. We also have some representatives that come from the health systems. And the board is an independent board for the HRET, and they really help us to provide oversight and guidance to our strategies and tactics. They help us to make sure that we evaluate progress, how we're doing within HRET in terms of meeting our core competencies and our goals. They help us even, in fact, uh, to co-design strategies and tactics along with us. And how do people come to be a trustee? How do, how do you how do you how do you choose one, or how how did how are they selected? Right, there's a a nominating committee for HRET, and uh, we look for our board members to introduce us to other experts in the field of education and research. Uh, we turn to the AHA for nominees that may come from the hospital and health system side, and so the nominating committee then reviews that, and then it provides some recommendations that go to the executive committee uh, of the board of HRET. So the president you mentioned, the president of HRET is is Dr. Malik Joshi. Can you talk to the roles of president and COO and how kind of your two roles work together and how they're separate? Sure. I know um, when Malik first approached me about this position. I was uh, working at North Shore and uh, was actually comfortable in the role of the chief medical quality officer. And I was approached uh, with this opportunity. And Malik explained it that uh, he is located in Maryland and he was looking for someone to be the internal leader here in the Chicago office for HRET and to manage really all of the day-to-day operations. So one of the things that I try to do is I come to work every day and um, try to look after uh, 80 of the smartest, brightest researchers and educators that we have within the American Hospital Association and to try to help fulfill their dreams by meeting with their daily operational needs are. So I do things all the way from finance to HR to helping to, to uh, pave a path towards more efficient and effective work. We are uh, on a journey towards the quality prize. So uh, part of what I do is to try to import some of what my knowledge is of uh, performance improvement. Uh, Dr. Joshi is the strategist, and he looks across the bigger picture from a national point of view and the interface with all the other clinical leadership activities within the American Hospital Association. So you mentioned you have about 80 folks that work for you? Yeah, there are 80 people here within HRET, and they uh, range from a variety of titles. We have some support staff uh, that primarily uh, prop up the organization. That's the areas of uh, finance and um, our research enterprise. And then we have people who are from the entry-level program specialists to the program managers who actually help to evolve and plan excuse me, tactics around the strategies for these research programs, our senior program managers all the way up through our directors and vice presidents who really are responsible for helping to shape a particularly 
uh, grant-funded opportunity into what it's uh, ultimately going to be, and then we have a chief research officer whose job is to continuously troll for opportunities for us uh, to improve and to seek funding uh, opportunities that uh, that are through the form of proposals. So does HRET primarily get its revenue through grants, or is there another method? Yeah, we, uh, we receive contracts, uh, oftentimes through federally funded contracts with CMS and ARC. We have some foundation grant funding. Uh, the American Hospital Association provides us some funding on the publication side. Uh, we have a portion of our enterprise that's responsible for publishing a number of uh, different areas that help the AHA members with their journeys uh, in improvement. And so uh, really those are the three primary funding sources. What are the so? What are the primary business lines? You you've met, you're doing research. You produce a journal, uh, the Health Services Research Journal. What else? What is what are what are the uh, business lines that HRET has? Right, we have a business line that's called HPOE, the Hospitals in Pursuit of Excellence, and that division is really charged largely with production of guides and educational materials that help hospitals directly to get better from day to day and week to week. We have the Association of Community Health Improvement, and that is really designed of looking at uh, how hospitals and health systems can better interface with their communities to design strategies that are more holistic and to build cultures of health for their communities. So that's another major area. And then the biggest is in the research side. That's the primary side of what we do. Okay. And and can you give me some examples of, of the kind of research areas that you are uh, uh, actively engaged in? Sure. We uh, led the largest collaborative of hospitals and health systems in improvement through a federally funded project through CMS that really helped us to touch many, many lives and improve the care patterns for many, many lives across America. The um, We lovingly call that HIN 1.0, the Hospital Engagement Network that was funded through CMS. And in doing that, we found that we probably made significant impact on both improving the effectiveness in the care planning for uh, patients and communities across the country. We reduced the total cost of care for these same communities. And so it was a very important exercise in being able to do that. From an educational point of view, I'd like to just cite a couple of things that I think were fairly pioneering the work done through our hospitals in pursuit of excellence. There was a publication in January of 14 that's called Your Hospital's Path to the Second Curve. It's providing a new way of viewing hospital services from shifting from what we're volume-based business models to more value-based business models. And this was really along the lines of the Accountable Care Act, uh, trying to help hospitals with that. And the second is one that we published in conjunction with some funding we received from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on hospital-based strategies for creating a culture of health. We evaluated the community health needs assessments and provided some background and uh, exemplars of health systems across the country who were really dramatically reaching out into the communities and expanding uh, health rather than just treating disease. And so you're sharing this kind of information um, out to the to the larger community then? That's correct. These are, uh, again, as a way of uh, helping to fulfill the American Hospital Association's uh, value proposition. These are provided uh, free of charge for the field, in other words, all hospitals and health systems, so that they might learn from others and and actually improve on a day-to-day basis. What's You've, you've worked, you've spent most of your early career uh, in, a, in healthcare delivery. Uh, you've now, you know, you relatively recently transitioned into this research role. What's different about running a research organization versus a healthcare delivery system? Well, I think in the healthcare delivery system, uh, in many ways, there is a passive influx of people who need uh, your help and assistance because of illness. Now, many hospitals and health systems are really stretching out beyond that to try to get a wellness and prevention approach to it, but it very much is in receipt of patients with already existing illness. And so the the services being designed and delivered 
uh, are really organized around that. And so the primary work of what I was doing was how do you perfect those services so that we always do things right the first time and how do we avoid doing right things wrong? Kind of our little nickel and dime approach to saying what is the definition of quality and safety? Now, a research organization, we are looking at what are more far-reaching questions. We begin to say, well, what might be a problem and then who might have some expertise in helping us to design at scale um, some ideas and then testing these change packages to find out what might work best. So it's really a, a testing of a hypothesis as opposed to really creating a, more of an organic quality improvement strategy. Okay. What is, what's a day in the life of the HRET COO like? Well, the uh, the first waking moment I have is I wonder what I may find today because it's always uh, it's always about learning, and uh, that's been one of the beautiful things of coming here to HRET is that I learn something new every day. Uh, there are some extremely bright people who are here, um, just young bright minds who are always reaching out, challenging, stretching the borders, and so all day long I try to find ways of reducing barriers, knocking things out of the way so that these really, really bright people can um, fulfill the big dreams that they have as they come to work. So I would say that uh, my daily life is about helping people to get done what they really wanted to do as they set out their career path. All right. And what keeps you up at night as the COO? What do you worry about, uh, you know, as you as you form the strategy, as you look into the future as as a chief operating officer? What do you worry about for the organization? You know, I think probably my biggest worry is that there is somebody out there in a community someplace in the United States who's not yet been touched by some of the improvement strategies that we've been able to put in place through our research and education. I go to bed at night and I wonder and worry, how can I create the change at scale to occur in even a faster or an accelerated rate than at what it is right now? I think we have some great change packages we put together. We try to promote the idea of change. We try to look at how do we work through intermediaries to make it more efficient down to the to the very bed of the very hospital in um, remote locations in, in the United States. But I still worry that we're just not getting there fast enough. Why, why do you think it's useful to the organization that you came up through the physician ranks rather than, say, as a, as a researcher or, you know, from the academic side or uh, – some other uh, other avenue. How do you how do well, you add value as a having having that physician background? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in in a in sort of a contrary way to how I was trying to get the street cred of going back and working with administrators and board members in the health system. I think that by providing a physician voice to education and research, it provides a little bit of a grounding the street reality of actually how practice is working currently. So as to produce change, I think you need to best understand first how things work currently. And I think that's the, one of the biggest things that I bring is as we try to solve problems to understand the current state of affairs. So that, that brings my next question, which is, do you ever get a chance to practice medicine now uh, in your role? I really don't just simply because of the, uh, the scope and the span of what it is in the practice of what I do. Um, it's not to say that I don't miss it because I, as a transplant physician for many, many years, I, I still continue to hear from patients of mine on the anniversary of their transplant or sometimes they'll just give a quick call to me because they wanted to check out something. And every time I pick up the phone and I hear one of those or field an email from one of my patients, it's as if my heart is just right back into that again. So I, I certainly do miss that. And I realize the importance and, and the privilege I actually had of caring for patients one at a time. But what I try to reconcile is that I'm trying to help now thousands of patients every day across America. Sure. So we talked earlier about your identity as a physician. I wanted to ask you kind of, you and you talked about getting street cred to be able to work with executives, in particular administrative executives. As with becoming a physician, kind of becoming a, a, an effective executive is something you, that comes to you over time. When did your identity include being not just a physician who happened to do some managerial work, but, but as a physician executive? You know, I think this goes back um, to the leadership roles I had the privilege of having as both the two residencies and one fellowship that I was in of actually 
helping to be a voice for physicians. Now, that meant that I had to actually um, get in the mix of things and find out what it was that was going right and sometimes find out what it was that was not going so well for the physicians to whom I was responsible for. And in going through that, there were uh, some tough decisions that had to be made and there were some tough conversations that had to be had. But in doing this, I think it helped to round out my personality as a leader overall. So I think that the role of an executive is trying to garner some basic, what I will call book learning, but also gather some experiential learning and then merging those together and then trying to help people to understand better what it is that they're doing, what they're responsible for doing, and helping to hold them accountable to themselves to get the best work product that they have. So let's transition now to talk a little bit about leadership specifically. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? Well, I was exposed to a fellow at the University of Notre Dame uh, who came to speak to our executive leadership group when I was at Memorial Health System in South Bend, uh, and his name is Lou Nani. And he described something to me at the time that was called servant leadership. And it was really designed, instead of taking a pyramidal top-down approach, this is really inverting that period and then looking up to see all of the people that you were responsible for to try to help them in their work by clearing barriers and knocking down things that cause them to not be as effective in their work. So my leadership philosophy is that I, I serve all of the 80 people that I work for here at HRET. You've kind of answered this question, but let me ask it and, and ask for some maybe some specifics. What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? And how do you aspire to those yourself? Well, one of the things I've always tried to do, and I think it's really central to being a good leader, is to be able to listen, to listen to people's dreams and listen to what it is that they're aspiring to do, uh, and then trying to ask them what it is that keeps them from that in their day-to-day areas. And then the second is, I think, to try to stimulate them every day, to try to be optimistic and positive and stimulate them to greatness, to get them to continuously reach after those big, hairy, audacious goals that everyone has sitting inside of him and herself, but trying to keep them stimulated towards moving along that way. And then I think the last is is trying to engage people in their own development. So trying to help people to dream big dreams about how they may want to influence their organization, this organization or any other organization they may choose to go to. But finding some way to connect with those dreams and helping them to plot that trajectory towards getting to it. Did you observe this kind of behavior in any particular leader that you uh, served under or, or, or observed during your career? No, I had what I would say are just two shining examples of people who helped me to see um, one more from a research point of view and the other from more of a executive leadership point of view. But I had the chance while I was at the University of Wisconsin to work with Dr. David Kendig. And David has done some absolutely marvelous work in clinical research and uh, looking at populations and so forth. And I had a good chance to learn from David about the value and roles of what a good clinical researcher might look like. And then from a leadership point of view, there was a fellow by the name of Dr. Phil Newbold, and Phil is was the head of the Memorial Health System in South Bend. He's now leads up what's called Beacon Health in northern Indiana. And Phil was a guy who was a very industrious, hardworking, optimistic, and visionary fellow, very innovative. And he caused me to continually think about how I could do my work better. And so I would say these are probably the two greatest leadership examples that I had uh, along my developmental path. Can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson that you had to learn the hard way? Yeah, I think, you know, the challenges come up every time. And I, I think from these challenges, the, the biggest thing we all should challenge ourselves to do is to learn from those. So Phil Newbold, as I mentioned, like an outstanding executive leader, said to me, you know, the only thing you should do every day is you should try to fail forward fast. And that is really, it was his commitment towards learning. So I think probably one of the biggest challenges uh, or leadership lessons that I had was I really wanted to make sure that I uh, learned more carefully 
about the intricate workings of a particular area before I let it stand on its own. I needed to understand the work product before I let it uh, run. So there was one in particular where I uh, trusted the uh, areas where the numbers were coming together, the financial numbers were coming together. And in fact, what I really realized was that perhaps the numbers were a little soft. And as I got into that particular area, I did find that they were soft and not as reproducible as I would love to have them. And so probably along Phil's line of failing forward fast, the very first thing I did was get in, roll my sleeves up, and find out how it worked and where the numbers were coming from. And then I was able to build a process so that I could be more comfortable with being able to rely on where those numbers were. So uh, with every challenge, I think, comes a great opportunity. Uh, the opportunity is there for the for the learning, and that was one that I guess I uh, I probably learned a really difficult leadership lesson about. Uh-huh. Okay, can you give an example of a leadership challenge that you're particularly proud of having met? No, I would say probably that is being able to take something that uh, was a little on the soft side, unpredictable side, and then trying to bring in an individual to the organization who I, through an interview process, was a wonderful fit for the organization, who had unique skills and talents, and then working with that individual to build a standardized process so that we could rely on on the numbers on a regular basis. So that leads me to the next question. What do you look for when you're hiring leaders and also evaluating them? Yeah, you know, I've always been a big uh, fan of hiring for character and teaching competency. But overall, the the kinds of things I look for people who are outstanding leaders are folks who are optimistic about today and tomorrow, people who are positive in their work, that are really designed to be mission-driven, that are folks of high integrity and authenticity, that um, they are transparent with who they are, that they – what you see is what you get, because th- those are the people that when you're in a crisis situation or you're really rolling up your sleeves and getting into a hard and difficult situation, you want people like that around to know that you're going to be able to solve a problem and move forward to a better state tomorrow than you are today. Okay. And, and then when you're evaluating leaders, what is it you're looking for over time as you observe their performance? What are you, what are you focused on? You know, I guess I, I look for team-based folks who have been successful. I had an, an old colleague, Alan Philly at the University of Wisconsin, who said the best predictor of future behavior is past performance. And so I look for people who have been able to work within teams and accomplish something special, perhaps even greater than what they originally were setting out to do. And to do that within the cultural framework of not leaving uh, dead bodies behind. I I like people who are really good at working within teams and that have a lot of respect within the team so that uh, people feel energized by working together. Well, you mentioned culture. So I wanted to ask you, what is organizational culture and why is it important? Yeah, you know, I I guess I simplistically look at culture as, um, and what guides me is uh, culture is kind of what's happening when no one else is around watching you. So I think people can be in a culture where they can exhibit doing the right things or exhibit the correct behaviors when their supervisor is around. But the real culture of an organization, whether that's a health system or a research and educational system, it's what people are doing every day when no one else is around monitoring them. And so I I like to see uh, an organizational culture that has a, a true idea of where it's going so that it's visionary and that it sort of values its people, that uh, people understand what it stands for. So it has uh, some very specific values that are well known to the organization, but not just values that are words on a page, but values that when you walk into that organization, you can actually see them in action. How do successful leaders shape organizational culture? Well, I think the first is is to really model those behaviors you're really looking for. So if, for example, you believe that um, passion for work is a, an organizational value that's a part of your culture, then I think modeling passion and getting people enthused and excited about work is certainly a responsibility of uh, of an executive leader. If uh, If one of the ideas is that you want to respect people within teams, then you need to model that respect. You need to ask questions respectfully, and you need to challenge people for their best, but do that respectfully. And um, so I think the biggest thing is that 
senior leaders can probably shape organizational culture first and best by being explicit and by modeling what are the behaviors they expect to find in that organizational climate at that time. You, um, you've mentioned a, a, a number of, of people who I think you regard as mentors. What do good mentors do? You know, I think that they, um, they stimulate you to, to think. From the couple of mentors that I mentioned before, both David Kendig and Phil Newbold, I, I think the things that they cause me to do is uh, if I were to bring forward a hypothesis, they would always ask me to think more deeply. They would challenge my assumptions and get me to reframe my basic thinking so that I was able to embrace a more complex set of thoughts behind uh, an individual problem. So along the lines of borrowing from high reliability organizations, they allowed me the opportunity to not oversimplify. So they challenged me uh, to think more deeply about a problem. They also were able to point me to resources that helped me to frame my thinking so that it wasn't just, you know, go forth and um, use my solution, but go out and dig into these areas. And here's some areas you may want to consider reviewing or reading more about, and then going forward from there to, to come up with your own ideas. And then the final thing that they did in their mentorship was to be a really great sounding board. So that if I had a, a, a solution that I'd been working on for a while, I'd come back to them and I'd say, how does this sound to you? What are the, what am I missing here? And so in, in the sounding board, they did a great job of uh, helping me to reframe. How, it, it sounds like you thought these, these um, relationships were important to your development. How, how should young folks going out into the field identify or find people who can help them as a mentor? You know, I think leadership and mentorship comes at all levels. Uh, to this day, I, I continue to be mentored by people who are folks who are supposed to be reporting to me because I learn so much from them every day. So I think that people can be mentored by coworkers uh, in an informal fashion. They could be mentored more directly by their direct supervisor or managers. And then some um, organizations and, and institutions have formal mentorship programs where they make a connection point uh, between a specific individual with a set of uh, skills and talents and someone who's trying to plot and plan their trajectory somewhat similar to what that individual might might be on. Does uh, HRET have a formal mentorship program? Uh, as of this particular date in January of 2016, we do not, but that is a key goal that I have for 2016. So if you and I were to talk a year from now, uh, I would say, yes, we do have a formal mentorship program. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, maybe I'll catch up with you at some point and ask you how that's going. Um, yeah, it's, it's just that I've been in organizations with formal mentorship programs, and, yeah. and very selfishly, I have gotten so much out of them that uh, I look forward to doing that here at HRET. Do you perform the role of mentor for other leaders now? Um, I do. Yeah, I, I do here. And again, in my effort to kind of model behaviors, uh, one of the key jobs that I believe that I have and responsibilities I have to them is to ask them two simple questions. And that is, what are you good at and what do you like doing? And then those two introductory questions begin to outline a journey or a path or a trajectory towards what are some of their career goals? It's then my responsibility uh, to help mentor them along that path or introduce them to people who might be able to help mentor them along that path. In relation to kind of getting introductions, how important are professional associations for development and which professional associations do you belong to? You know, I, uh, I'm a, a formal participant in some and an informal participant in others. Okay. Um, but uh, the American College of Physicians Executives was one that I uh, became very uh, fundamentally aware of. They've gone through some changes over time, and I'm more informally connected with them in their current iteration. I am a formal member of the American Medical Association so that I can keep my fingers on the pulse of what's happening in healthcare. And then the American College of Healthcare Executives, I do a number of things with them uh, over my career, but it's more of an informal relationship. But um, I have uh, any number of, of organizations that I have good friends, colleagues, and relationships with them that I uh, hopefully help to provide some input to as well as learn from. So final questions. Based on your experiences, what advice would you have for clinicians who are thinking about making the transition to physician executive 
or, or clinician executive. And then also, since selfishly here, since I, I happen to teach in an undergraduate program for health management, what would you advice would you have for, for my students uh, as they prepare to launch on a career in, in, in management? Well, I think first is take the time and cr- create the space so that you can learn as much as you can about your chosen field. I think having that um, authenticity, that street cred is so important. I think that you need to answer the bell by taking on the, to be a part of the solution. It's a challenge to not stand on the sidelines, but to really be a part of the solution rather than just pointing out uh, issues that are that are not working well. And I, I think for my physician colleagues, I've always given them one piece of advice, and that is that if you give away your part of the conversation as healthcare is changing, then what you're going to be reliant on is that you will then solely be a worker in a system that's designed by others. And so the responsibility, the challenge, and the personal BHAG or Big Hairy Audacious Goal is if you're involved, you get the chance to help create what that system may look like. And then the final thing I would say, particularly for your students, is just dream big. I mean, I think the idea is we we oftentimes, we find ourselves holding ourselves a little short on what it is that we might possibly be able to do. And I guess I would be, you know, reluctant if I didn't say that I my personal story is one where, you know, I, I grew up coming from parents who had never been to college and had I not really challenged myself or allowed myself to dream really big dreams, I think that my career path would have been limited and very short and it's been just a wonderful ride so far and I continue to come to work every day challenging myself, uh, what can I do tomorrow? Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed the interview. I enjoyed it as well, and uh, I hope uh, that uh, people who have an interest in this might use this to help stimulate them towards, again, doing something big and realizing a big dream. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.